It's time for the spring sales event at the DGDG Mazda stores. Capital Mazda, Stevens Creek Mazda, Concord Mazda, and Team Mazda. Hey, it's Shondell Grand. And right now we've got a huge selection of brand new Mazdas with exciting spring incentives across our entire lineup. Plus, you can buy your new Mazda completely online with our exclusive no-brainer checkout. Don't miss the spring sales event at the DGDG Mazda stores in San Jose, Concord, and Vallejo. Coming to you from the heart of Silicon Valley, this is CUDA Confidential, the official podcast of the San Jose Barracuda, AHL affiliate of the San Jose Sharks. Now, here's your host, Nick Nolenberger. The Barracuda wrapped up their six-game homestand at the SAP Center against the San Diego Goals on Tuesday and Wednesday. Entering Tuesday's game, the Barracuda were on a season-long three-game winning streak and were above 500 by three games for the first time this season. Before the game, though, the Anaheim Ducks assigned veteran AHL captain Sam Carrick back to the goals. And Carrick made his presence felt just 18 seconds into the game on Tuesday, setting up Andrew Podorowski in the slot, and the goals were off and running with a 1-0 lead. As the goals are bringing it into the offensive zone, there's a quick shot, and it's into the back of the net. Podorowski just 18 seconds into the first period. Gives the San Diego goals a 1-0 lead. So Sam Carrick sets up Andrew Podorowski, who just wires one inside the far post. Just four minutes and 32 seconds later, rookie Alex Limoge would score on San Diego's third shot of the game, giving the goals a 2-0 lead. Ico and rolled back to center. Kindop to that far wall. Lugger chops it ahead. Here's a chance. Shot, they score! And the goals take a 2-0 lead. It's going to be Alex Lamont who snaps a six-game goalless drought. Down by two, the Barracuda would dig themselves into an even deeper hole as Carrick would net his 13th of the year on a two-on-one just a minute and 40 seconds into the second period on San Diego's first shot of the middle frame. Over to SJBarracuda.com. Redekop pinching from the left point, intercepted by Sam Carrick. Could be a two-on-one. He's got Lamolge down the wing. Back to Carrick, works in, and he scores. Snuck it through the five-hole of Alexei Milnichuk, who looked like he was in the right spot, but Carrick just snuck it under him. It is a three-to-nothing lead for the goals. Comes a minute and 40 seconds into the second period. Despite outshooting the goals 16-3 in the second, San Diego would take that 3-0 lead into the final period. In the third, the Barracuda would get some life from Leon Bergman as the second-year pro would net his second goal over his last three games, cutting the lead down to 3-1 just 36 seconds into the final period. Into the offensive zone, Carrick works to the backhand, turned aside by Melnichuk. Something about that first shot of each period tonight has just been a lot to say the least. Here's a chance, backhander, Bergman, he scores! Just 36 seconds into the third, Bergman has his second over his last three games. And Dostal's shutout bid comes to an end early here in the third. 
But halfway through the frame, the Barracuda would fall into penalty trouble. And on the power play, San Diego's Limoges would get his second of the game to push the lead back up to three for the goals. Perot. Up to the point for Bruyard. His shot, and he scores from the right point. It's 4-1 San Diego. Less than three minutes later, again on the power play, rookie defenseman Axel Anderson would wire in his first AHL goal to give San Diego a 5-1 lead. They didn't want to avoid their first regulation loss. Here's a shot. It is 5-1. Agazino picks the corner. And that comeback attempt we were talking about looks that much more bleak. One bright spot of Tuesday's 5-1 loss was the continued recent production of Barracuda forward Leon Bergman. Bergman spoke about what has changed in the offensive zone as of late after a slow start to his season. Maybe getting a couple of good bounces now. Maybe, you know, I was slacking those earlier. Had a had a lot of posts. But, um, yeah, getting some of those bounces back now and then the other big thing is, uh, I think, our line. I think we, we have a great chemistry together, and we just find ways to produce offense almost constantly. So I think those are two major points. After Tuesday's 5-1 loss, the Barracuda were back on the ice on Wednesday. Assistant coach Michael Chason talked about what his team needed to change to try to get a better outcome on Wednesday. I think you touched on it. I think the shots obviously are great. And, you know, the second period, we definitely put some pressure on them, but not enough. We didn't have enough guys going. We spotted them with a lead. That's a great team over there. And, you know, they're, they're, they're built the right way. They play the right way. They, they, have some, they have some fun. They're playing with some jam. And, you know, they, they do things on us. So you got to give them credit where credit's due. And we just didn't have it last night. We weren't ready for the puck drop and hopefully looking for a better result today. Unfortunately, just like Tuesday, though, the Barracuda found themselves playing from behind early. Again, it was Axel Anderson as he would score just three minutes and 34 seconds into the first period on Wednesday to give the goals a one to nothing lead. All defenseman does Trevor Carrick in the AHL in penalty minutes. Here's a chance for San Diego and they score just over the right pad of Sam Harvey and Axel Anderson makes it goals in back-to-back games. Down for most of the period, the Barracuda managed to tie it up as Joachim Blickfeld would get turned aside on his initial opportunity, only to score moments later with his team-leading 12th of the year to tie it up at 1-1. For True, Magna to the near side for Blickfeld, and Erickson came over and completely robbed him with the left pad. What an opportunity for Blickfeld. There was some open net, but Blickville would have had to elevate the puck, and he put it along the ice, and Erickson X stoned him. Barracuda have had a couple chances here in the first. A crossbar by Latunov, and that chance by Blickville. Blickville again! This time, he scores! 5-14 into the second, though. Goals veteran forward Vinny Letary would recapture San Diego's lead, making it a 2-1 score. And now Zegras will navigate to the high slot. Little give and go, and Letary tips it home on the setup feed by Chase DeLeo. And the goals take a 2-0 or a 2-1 lead on just their second shot 
of the second period. Then 56 seconds later, Simon Benoit would pound one in for his first of the year as the goals would take a 3-1 lead. Barbie made the save with a goal stick and then another save right after it. Now a shot from Benoit and they score. It's a 3-1 San Diego lead. An offensive zone draw won by the goals, and it's pounded home by Simon Benoit. At 13:09, the Barracuda would get back into the game as Alexander True would score on a Jaden Holbegawak's feed to cut the lead down to 3-2 in the second. Make around some traffic, poke it along for Blickfeld. Here's a chance developing Holbegawak's for True. He scores! <laughs> But hopes were almost all but dashed when Andrew Agazzino would bank one in for the goals with just two seconds remaining in the second period to push San Diego's lead to 4-2 entering the second intermission. Seconds remaining in the period. Ponorowski down low, centered back in front, and it bounces in. And the goal score with two seconds remaining in the second period. And three separate failed clearing attempts and you just saw it coming and Andrew Agazzino is going to be the one credited with the goal. In the third, Sam Carrick would score an empty net goal at 17-23 and then rookie forward Trevor Zegris would put in his ninth of the year with just 21 seconds remaining as the goals finished up the season series with a 6-2 win. The Barracuda would get three days off between games as they would hit the road on Sunday afternoon in El Segundo to take on the Ontario Reign, wrapping up the week's slate of games and also wrapping up the season series with the LA Kings affiliate. Entering Sunday, the Reign were coming off a 2-0 win in Bakersfield just the night before, arguably their best victory of the year. Knotted at nothing, nothing, the Barracuda would take a high-sticking penalty at 11:19 of the first, and veteran Martin Furk would score on the power play to give the Reign the game's first lead. Tries to shake Djokovic. It's in Djokovic's skates. Now Dursey stumbling ahead, came out with it. Now Kapari, rink wide. There's a shot by Furk, and the save is made. Arms are up for Furk. I thought for sure that puck hit the back, back bar. Martin Furk thinks it's a goal. The horn is on. It is sounded. It was waved off as no goal, and now the officiating crew is going to have a conversation here. But just seven seconds later, Jake McGrew off the ensuing faceoff will carry the puck down the right wing, and the former L.A. Junior King who played his youth hockey at the Toyota Sports Performance Center would ring one off the far post to tie the game up at 1-1. On April 11th against the Barracuda, and that's a lead. Here comes Shake McCrew, his shot, he scores! McGrew answers back off the ensuing faceoff as he rings it off the far post, and the Barracuda draw even here in this opening period. Then at 1547, rookie forward Scott Reedy would crash the net and slide in his fourth of the year as the Barracuda would take their first lead of the game. Cruz shot, another good chance at a low shot. Puck is jammed home. Reedy, he scores! In the second, up 2-1, to one, Captain Jacob Magna would rip one in from the point to give the Barracuda a 3-1 lead at the 7-15 mark. For Magna, it snapped a 19-game goalless drought. It's offense starting to turn after a slow start to his season. 
Magna will play it off the end wall. Held in by Magna. Shot from the left point. He scores! With just over five minutes to go in the second period, the Barracuda were called for another minor penalty. And the rain would make it two for two on the power play as highly touted prospect Alex Turcott would snipe in his third of the year to cut the lead down to 3-2. Recovered Kaliev, now Moverer, near side Turcott works to the top of the circle and he scores. What a release by Alex Turcott picking the top right corner. Perfectly placed, it's another power play goal for Ontario. But in the third, Jaden Hobgawaks would extend San Jose's lead to 4-2 at 4-22. Hobgawaks missed nine games in the month of April, but it was his third point over his last two games, all but sealing the win. 3-2 lead for the Barracuda. Here comes McGrew. Two points already on the night, centered in front. Had a man, jam play, they score! Jaden Hobgawaks has a goal here. It's his fifth of the year, and the Barracuda go back up by two in this line as its third goal of the night. Rookie Scott Reedy and Jake McGrew each finished the game with a goal and two assists. And the third member of that line, Jaden Hobgawaks, picked up a goal himself and added a helper as well. As the Barracuda picked up a 4-2 win, sweeping the four-game season series with the Ontario Reign. We had a chance to catch up with former Worcester Sharks video coach, now turned analyst slash assistant to the Sharks coaching staff, Charlie Townsend. When we come back, we'll play part of that interview. This is Cuda Confidential. We are joined by Charlie Townsend, Sharks hockey analyst, assistant to the Sharks coaching staff. Charlie, first of all, thank you so much for the time. I've got a two-parter to start. You began your career under Pete DeBoer. You're now working under Bob Bugner and his staff. Over your time with the organization working within analytics, how have you seen coaches become more receptive to numbers, to analytics as a whole? And my second part now the data has been accumulated for, let's say, X number of years. You've got kind of a database. How has that made it easier to decipher what's important and what may not have as much value? 
Yeah, so there, I'd, I'd answer that in two ways. I think the first question in terms of how coaches have responded to it, I think, is one answer. And the other answer is sort of how to use the data in a meaningful way. So the first part, I think, and it, with within the motion of the game and after games, um, confirmation bias can seep in where you, you want to find a number that confirms what you're thinking, right? Like, I knew we weren't good at this and I want to see that number dangerous got to be got to be careful there because that's just creates a repetitive thinking cycle where you're just confirming what you think the, uh, the the idea and the object of this is to do the exact opposite right illuminate the things you're not seeing or thinking to draw your attention there um so i would say the 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 real aha moments is when you know the coaches see things and you know there's inevitably there's especially the people who are just getting into the data scene for the first time their eye automatic mind i'm guilty of my for the for a lot of the first few experiences I had with it, I went to the things that I wanted to see, right? But the aha moment comes is when that 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 leads to an awareness of the metrics as a whole, right? You start looking for the things you want to see, inevitably, eventually, you're going to want to see the things that you don't see, right? So it's sort of curtailing or controlling those emotional responses for confirmation bias to get to this point where like, actually, look at all this other, this whole other place we can look to, to see these things, if that makes sense, if you follow me. Um, so yeah, it's nurturing to get the coaches sort of in a productive place where it's a little bit nurturing. Yeah, we can find out what you want to see and, and, and that sort of thing, all the while having the awareness to continue to push them to see the things they're not seeing, right? So it's a little bit of a, a juggling act. Um, and both Pete and now Boogie um, have gone through, I mean, or both have been fantastic. I mean, completely integrated into their thinking and, and, and into their pre and post game perspectives and totally open and it's been again, makes my job a lot easier that they're, they're open to it. And then second part of your question, I think to find what's meaningful is a little bit in the same vein of, you know, you don't want to just look at the things that tell you you're good, obviously. Um, and in hockey where you, where you get different sort of experience of the data in terms of hockey versus like a baseball hockey, so dynamic, right? There's one start point, it's the face off, but between that start point and the next end point, there could be four events, seven events, 300 events, 54 events, whatever that number is. So there's a, there's a, there's a flow perspective that's absent in baseball where it's pitch swing hit or miss or whatever, whatever it's, it's, it's a much more structured flow. Right. So um, you look at it in hockey with, you know, you're trying to play from a certain team perspective, you're trying to play a certain way, you know, what your system is, you know, what you want to accomplish as a team, the way that you want to play. So you want to look at those metrics that reflect that both positively and negatively. The thing with hockey that gets dicey is, you know, a breakout to this person and a breakout to that person might be two different things, right? You know, does a break it breakout start after a dump in below the hash marks or does a breakout start and start after any puck recovery in the defensive zone, right? And that changes from coach to coach or system to system. So we're, we're able now with the data and with the, with the technology to define things exactly how we want them, right? So we want to know what our breakout percentage is off a dump in below the hash marks, right? Because that to us is what starts breakout. And then again, with the technology and the, and the way we're able to work through is we can use that number to then compare everybody, right? So you're not just comparing our definition of a breakout to St. Louis's definition definition of a breakout, which is different, right? You're level, leveling the playing field by defining things in your terms. And then you're able to then get a broader snapshot of the system, whether it's breakout, forecheck, while it's still meaningful to you because it's the way you see it and it's how those teams are performing in that way. Um, all the while, again, on the back end of it, you have to be aware that the other team is playing a different way and they may be looking at things a little differently. So there's a little bit of a give and take within that dynamic nature of the sport um, that things are defined differently. But as a whole, the sport's also started to sort of 
funnel towards more standard definitions of things just because certain outlets or certain places that provide these analytics are becoming more of a, a standard. Um, so there is some, some meshing going on that way. But the end, at the end of the day, the game still has certain characteristics or certain metrics or certain um, sort of markers that determine performance, right? And, we, and you always look at that from a trend perspective. So uh, just for certain examples, you know, the rush, scoring off the rush, creating off the offense off the rush was, you know, the years in 16, 17, 17, 18, you saw the team Chicago, Edmonton and McDavid, Tampa Bay, that would just blew the roof off, blew the, blew the roof off with, with rush scoring. Um, so that became a surge, but then teams started to defend the rush differently and that slowed down. And then in zone became more, more important scoring, you know, off cycle plays and scoring down low off, 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 off down low offense. So staying ahead of those trends is, is incredibly valuable and being able to identify those trends. Um, so there's, it's, it's a multi-pronged animal, really. Um, you're constantly leveraging the way that you want to play against the way you define things with, you know, how other teams are playing, how they want to play, and how the metrics sort of spin that narrative together. Um, really interesting because, again, it just drives you to these places where you are forced to ask yourself questions about your own thinking and, and sort of that self-awareness as an organization, right? Um, and the ability to be able to leverage your awareness about what's going on elsewhere with so much data is just like, how lucky are we, man? Like, um, it's been really, really fruitful in that perspective. Um, so I hope that answers your question, if it does. We were talking to Charlie Townsend, Sharks hockey analyst, assistant to the Sharks coaching staff. How are you using analytics now to measure prospects, maybe even before they're drafted, but once they're drafted, they're in the organization to the time they turn pro and to the time they get up to the NHL? Yeah, and I think it, you know, it's with, with prospects and individual players, it can be very circumstantial, um, whether it's your vision of the player. And, and I wish I had more experience on purely the development side. I, I've been more tapped into the team perspective or the team play perspective. Um, and, we, and we've had stuff that I was going on long before I was here of processes in which we, you know, how we value our prospects, how we see their, their development. And that's really, I mean, Dougie Jr., Joe, Berkey, that's really their wheelhouse. Um, and I think, I think a broader picture sort of answer your question, the same way that baseball went from identifying value in the player level for acquisition, like Moneyball, and how that shifted towards development and while we can find ways to use this data to, to, to chart development. I think that's really the next frontier for, for hockey. Um, teams are, teams are doing it and they're doing it in their own ways already. Um, I don't know if anyone, and I don't know if anyone in baseball has even knows, but I don't know if anyone has the gold standard way to use analytics to fuel development. I don't think that's a one through step, one through 10 checklist or rubric. I think it's pretty, pretty fluid. Um, <clears throat> but I do see that as the next frontier. Um, I think, I think that's, and as long as it's done well and done in a controlled manner that provides, provides meaning that could be a scary competitive advantage, right? If you're able to somehow standardize a process within your organization that consistently yields the type of results you want from development, right? Um, and baseball is really fortunate because they have, you read, the, there's a book called MVP Machine I read recently, which, which goes back um, to sort of the beginning of the development analytic curve in baseball and tracks it to today. And what they've been able to do with you know slow slow motion cameras, the Edcartronic camera it's called, or you know using weighted balls because they can they can pinpoint such a specific part of whether it's a batter's swing or a pitcher's pitch 
because it's so replicable, right? It's the same swing every time. It's the same. I mean, there's variances in it, but pretty minimal in the grip. But like, if they're not generating enough spin on their curveball, they can see that in the Edgartronic camera by the spin rate, by the RPM. They can say, you know, move your knuckle this much, try that. Okay, that's the spin rate you want. And they can keep replicating that, right? With hockey, it's it's so much more fluid in the sense that you might, you know, the shot's the easy one to to compare with a baseball swing or a hockey shot, right? It's, it's, an, it's an action of players taking you pretty often. Um, but with hockey, it's that might come from 30 different spots in one game. It might come from 30 different passes in one game. It might come off your blade 30 different ways. So it's a much bigger, or I don't want to say bigger, it's more of a challenge to be able to pinpoint those sorts of areas, right, where you can in baseball where it's pretty static and pretty replicable. Um, but that's, that, that's, the, that's the fun part of thinking about is hockey is how do you – how do you accomplish that? Um, and that's, you know, it's a fun place to put your mind and a fun place to put a bunch of like-minded open people to say, okay, well, let's figure it out. Let's try. Um, so that's that I see that as a next frontier for sure. The AHL doesn't have as many resources, just not as much data, but what are a few things that you can still measure and that you still find really valuable? Yeah. Well, it's, it's crazy. Cause I look at it two ways. I look at like back when I was in the AHL and back when I started, very much those processes that we found valuable are still incredibly valuable and still alive in hockey, right? It's still the same sort of things like scoring chances, time of possession, those sorts of things we used to do with watching the video, making Excel sheet and making it um, are still the same. Uh, those things haven't changed. You're still driving a ton of information by your team from those things. And the AHL um, has come just in the last year in terms of syncing the information, the same information we get at the NHL level and the AHL level has gotten much closer, right? So you are able to then use both sets to, to, to draw information or draw conclusions that you need. Um, but the, the, like I'll, I can't reiterate enough that at the end of it still in hockey, you, you can get, you can drill down further and get, and get more granular, but still at the end of it, those sort of original, keystone sort of KPIs, if you want to call them, are still the ones that drive it. Um, we've just gotten better at peeling a few layers behind those to get a little deeper of why those are happening, right? Um, so I, it, it truthfully doesn't, I don't think, especially, you know, last year moving to this year, I don't think there's a huge disparity in terms of information anymore like like there was maybe three years ago between the NHL and the AHL. So yeah, we've been now been able to capitalize on just that. Um, because then you're looking at things, you know, how they, because we play the same way at both levels, right? You want your prospect play the same way. So you can look at it. He's playing this way within that system. And how does that translate to this system? And there is some, some fun stuff going on there. When you were in Worcester and you guys were kind of like your own entity at the time, um, did you try, did you guys try to run the same system? And, and when you came into the, when you came in originally, you're just trying to get your sea legs under you a little bit. How did you kind of get a good grasp on the system and understanding what the Sharks wanted to do both at the AHL and then up to the NHL level? Yeah. So that my first sort of um, welcome to high school moment, I guess, for that would be the, that first training camp when, when Todd McClellan was here and, and I was, I was there for them installing that first which was our same in Worcester, but I seen it for the first time when the players are seeing it for the first time. And I remember being like, I wonder if they all understand this. Cause I, like, <laughs> there's obviously, I was probably at reading level two at that point. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's very tactical in its nature at that point, right? Like it's very X's and O's and very structured. Um, so learning the system, I would say from my personal experience was, you know, staying persistent on, 
it's, it's not like an NFL dense playbook. I can't even imagine, but like, like I, I look at, I saw something the other day of like a quarterback's wristband and like the list of plays and how they call them. And it was just, it was a, it was, it looked like the Fibonacci sequence to me, but um, it's, yeah, it's still as dense. And for me, it was staying on top of it, you know, continuing to watch, continuing to ask questions, staying persistent. So that moment came when it just went, got it. I got, you see the pieces come together, all five pieces come together in the different, in the different places for the four check or the breakout. And then it all makes sense. Right. But you really have to take the time to go through it and understand each piece and how it reflects back to the whole. Um, but I remember it, it was, I went to see a professor and I was taking intro macroeconomics in college and I was swimming, I was struggling. And he just kept saying, stick with it. One day you're going to look at something and you go, it makes sense. And I don't know if it's sort of, elementary or, or naive to think about it that way, but it was sort of the same with the system. I was like super overwhelmed, but stuck with it, kept watching it, kept asking questions. Then all of a sudden it's just like, it clicks. Um, and the thing with hockey is too, is there, there's only so much latitude, right? With how different systems can be. They're all rel they're, they're tinkering little different pieces in all of them. But when it comes down to it, they all share a lot of characteristics. So once you get like into that, that first 30% of it, then the, re this, the next 70 kind of just makes sense. Um, and, and hockey is an interesting sport too, because there's so much deviation between structure and system and then happenstance and flow of the game. Right. Like, and you can see it as from your angle and you're watching, you can probably tell when you're in that sort of structure, okay, he's going to go here, he's going to go there. And then something happens. And then, then what, right. And then thinking and hockey IQ kind of take over. So it's a really fascinating sport in the sense of the, the little schism between system play, free play, where it all intersects and a lot of the time in my opinion when it when it bleeds out of that system and trends towards that free play is when all the magic happens right and then it goes back and then it gets back into structure and then there's some play and then it goes again and someone does something out of there and then something happens and then it goes back to structure so that's sort of the the beauty of the game for me is that it's super tactical and super controlled in a sense of you're instilling the structure and you want this structure but a lot of the beauty, a lot of the good stuff happens when that breaks down. That was Sharks analyst and assistant to the coaching staff, Charlie Townsend. We cannot thank Charlie enough for the insight. Awesome stuff. To find the full interview on demand, you can find it through the Sharks Plus SAP Center app. You can also listen through the Sharks Audio Network and go to sjsharks.com. This has been another edition of Cuda Confidential. I'm Nick Nolenberger saying so long until next time.